Thanks so much for joining us today on Leesburg Community Church's podcast. If you'd like more information about our church, including directions and service times, please visit leesburgcc.org. On our website, you can also find notes and daily devotionals based on this teaching. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope you liked today's message. Well, like I said earlier, we are in the, uh, the book of Esther. And it's uh, 10 chapters long, so as much as I would have loved to have read the whole thing, uh, we're not going to be able to do that. It really is one story that takes place throughout the entire book, and it's an amazing story. And uh, I've asked today for a, a really amazing young lady to join me, and it's Gretchen. Come on up, Gretchen. And she is going to help me to teach from, uh, from the book of Esther. And so what we're going to do is we're going to attempt um, to capture... So uh, as as I say we're going to attempt to, I I really mean we're going to attempt to capture all of Esther in about five minutes. Um, I think we decided last service that it took like 20 minutes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so get ready. (laughs) Got to go. All right, so here's basically the way we start out. You find that uh, there's this king, Xerxes, and uh, King Xerxes is the the king of Persia at the time, and... um, the Israelites have already left Babylon, uh, many of them, and they've already gone back to, uh, to rebuild the temple, and they've begun to start their worship. However, many stayed back and continued to stay in Babylon, even though they were told by Jeremiah and Daniel to leave after 70 years, to not stay in that location. But many of them were disobedient, and many of them continued to stay there. They were also involved in worshiping of false gods and other things, and it had become part of their custom and their culture, and they were just continuing on in their everyday life. It had gotten pretty easy for them. However, God had called them back to be his people, to worship as his people, to worship him, and to begin to carry on, or to continue to carry on the covenant that would ultimately end with the Messiah showing up that we know as Jesus, declaring salvation for the world by his acts, and bringing in the second covenant, the new covenant, that all would be saved through him. So Israel had to get back to being obedient. Israel had to get back to following the Lord, and the Lord was going to continue to carry out his covenant. So that's kind of where we pick up. And the story of actual Esther picks up in actual scripture, starting with King Xerxes is throwing the six-month party. It literally lasted six months, with the very last week being seven days, that he invited the rest of the city and the surrounding citadel, because the people that were invited were the governors and the providential leaders and things like that to the first six months. Many historians believe that it was during that six months that he was planning his attack with all of his leaders and all of his governors and everything, his attack on Greece that ultimately failed. But the bottom line is he was having a party. And this party literally lasted six months. And the last week, he said to everybody who joined him, drink as much as you want from whatever vat you want to pull from, which means you can have the best and the choicest wine that the king has to offer. Go for it, everybody. And they were hammered. Basically, you had a city that was drunk off their butts, right? And, uh, and so you had a king that was the same way. And the king calls for his eunuchs, and he said, hey, I got a hot-looking queen, and I want her out here because I want her to put on her, her crown, and I want to parade her around all the dudes that I have with me because I called them all, and I want to show them not only all my wealth and my great wine vats and, and everything, but I want to show them my hot queen. Well, she was at the time throwing a party for the women, and she got called, and she told the eunuchs, no, I'm not going. 
What? You don't tell the king you're not going, even if what he wanted to do was perverted and cruel. You don't tell the king no. And so he gets furious, and he calls in his advisors, and he says, hey, what am I supposed to do about the queen who disobeyed me and disobeyed me in front of all these people? And they said, oh, well, here's what you should do. Put her out. Don't ever allow her back into, the, uh, into your presence. She's no longer the queen. And pass a decree and send it throughout the region, throughout all the land, saying that the male, the man, is the authority in the house. And if you disobey him, you will be cast out just like the queen. He's like, that's a good idea. And he does it. And so now the queen's off and, and she's out by herself and he's got no queen. Well, guess what? Like every bad decision that's made when you're drunk, you sober up. And you realize what you did and you sit there with this mess on your hands and he's like, oh, where's my queen? And you got no queen because you trashed her, you knucklehead. And so his wise guys, again, step up and they say, let's go throughout the land and let's gather up all the virgins that we can find and we'll find a new queen for you and then you'll be happy because certainly we can't bring the old queen, uh, Vishti, back because she'll just have us killed for giving that really crummy advice in the first place. So we'll go get a new one. So that's what they did. They began to scour the land and they went house to house gathering the virgins. And they came across this one virgin, and her name was Esther. And Esther was living in the house of Mordecai, her cousin. Because when Esther was a small child, her mother and father were killed. And so Mordecai brought her in as her own, as his own. Now, Mordecai had some sort of a place of prominence and, and position within, uh, within the government because his, his post was right at the city gates. And if you had a post right at the city gates, it had some sort of authority. It had some sort of uh, prominence, and we're not told exactly what that prominence was. But the bottom line is that that's who was taking care of Esther. So Esther was essentially his daughter now. But the way that she is described is interesting. She's described as beautiful. She is described as shapely. She's not described in any other way. And so when the eunuchs came by to grab all the virgins, they're like, oh, we got to get this one right here. That's going to be a good one for the king. So they take her. And they bring her in to the rest of the harem, and they begin to do what they're doing with every single one of these virgins that are brought in. They prepare them. They counsel them. They give them baths and teach them how to dress. They primp them and prepare them for their night with the king. It says in Scripture that the virgins were brought in when it was their night of appointment at the at the night and stayed with the king until they left in the morning. And here we find our first introduction to Esther. So clearly we're not dealing with a culture that has a godly value or perspective on women, right? I think that's become super abundantly clear. And also while we see this, right, what we, what we, what we pass up a lot of times is that there's a lot of things that happened before this, right? What he's saying is that Esther was sold to be a sex slave. But what happened before that? She'd already lost her parents. She was already in a land that wasn't her home, raised by this cousin. And then she's only valued for what she looks like to a king who steals her from her, from her family and takes her off to the palace. So while that part of the story is what we focus on, right? don't forget the fact that Esther has time and time again in her life 
already seen tough situations and continued to follow Jehovah. It's critical that we don't treat that too lightly. We often say, how could God allow this or how could God allow that? God is always at work. He's taking our worst circumstances, our most dire circumstances, our most dire needs, and he is always at work. His plans are much greater, but we are involved in his plans. He cares about us even in the midst of really horrendous circumstances and difficulties. We never see a time in scripture where he, where he does not allow, again, for difficult, bad, evil things to come upon his people. It happens over and over and over again. It's his love that causes him to walk with them, to turn that which is really crummy into that which is absolutely amazing. It's his love that causes him to never leave them nor forsake them, to always care for them in the moment. For instance, Mordecai had some sort of position which allowed him not only to be at the gate, but to be in the court. And so he stayed in the court, constantly keeping his eye on Esther, giving her counsel, giving her advice, checking in with her daily, never taking his eye off of her. Oh, the plans of the Lord that we cannot see, even in the midst of chaos and pain and difficulty. They will not be thwarted, and they will not come to ruin. They will come to pass. And so, essentially, with, Mordecai finds out about this assassination attempt that's about to take place upon the king. And he, he gets a hold of Esther's ear, and he says, hey, uh, now that you've been made queen, oh, did I forget that part? I'm sorry. She had her time with the king, and she took the advice of this eunuch who really began to favor her and prepare her. She took the advice of an ungodly, unfaithful, non-Jew who God put in her way to prepare her for the night that she would be with the king. It said that she was favored more than all of the other virgins by this eunuch. And when it came time to go visit the king, every virgin got to take whatever they wanted from the harem to go in and spend the night with the king. They had to choose whatever they wanted to, whatever they wanted to dress, whatever they wanted to adorn themselves, whatever they wanted to bring. And she said that she was going to wait for the eunuch to tell her what to do. She took the advice of somebody that God placed in a really unique position to prepare her for this really crummy thing that she was going to have to encounter. That in the end, the king said, this is the one. This is the one I've been waiting for. This is the one I will crown queen. And now here is Esther in a position where she is queen. Mordecai now, fast forward to where we were, hears about this assassination attempt, tells Esther. Esther goes and tells the king. The king's like, are you kidding me? Wipes out the dudes that were about to assassinate him. And Esther goes, by the way, it was Mordecai that told me. And he goes, great. Writes it down in the history book and moves on. Haman jumps into the picture, this other guy that has some sort of a relationship with the king. And suddenly there's a party for Haman. Weird. It's just like out of nowhere. It's just there. Haman, party. Now he is second in command, basically, of the king. How did he get into the picture? We don't know. But it would seem as if Mordecai should have had the party for him because he did a really good job. And yet, nope, he's just at the gate doing his job. And then Haman gets that place of second in command. Weird. And so now Haman's second in command. But because you're second in command, everybody has to bow down to you when you pass them. Kind of like saluting in the army, right? Well, here he goes. He passes Mordecai. And Mordecai's like, nah, I ain't bound to that chump. <laughs> and so... Haman's advisors go, hey, uh, that, that dude's not bowing to you. What's the deal? 
And so they go up to him and go, why will you not bow to Haman? And he says this for the first time, because they had kept it a secret that Esther was a Jew. They had kept it a secret that Mordecai was a Jew. And for the first time, Mordecai goes, because I'm a Jew. Now, what's he saying there? He might be saying, I can't bow down because I worship Yahweh and I only bow down to the Lord my God. He might be saying that. Chances are he is. We're going to read in the scripture a little bit and assume that that's the case. Well, Haman goes nuts. He's like, that's crazy. He goes to the king and he says, hey, there's this people out there, the Jews. Yeah, they won't bow down to us. They're disrespectful and they're going to cause chaos and, and, and dissension in your kingdom. And so the king goes, well, all right, what should we do? And he goes, uh, let's kill them all. Uh, well, a year from today, we'll send out all the executioners and they will kill every Jew in your kingdom. Hey, that's a great idea. Let's do that. This king, I don't get him. But anyways, that's a great idea. Let's do it. So that's what happens. It's a good way to solve your problems. Yeah, just kill everybody. And I think that the, the way that this interacts with Esther is that she's already lost so much. She's already completely alone. Mordecai's at the gate, but she's alone in this harem with people that aren't from her race, that aren't from her culture. She's trying to hide who she is, completely alone. And now they want to kill her entire people, her family, her friends, her kindred, the people that she hasn't seen, the people that she wants to go home to. I mean, this story is heartbreaking, guys. <laughs> I don't know. It's heartbreaking. So Mordecai and all the rest of the people begin to mourn. They begin to, to tear off their clothing. They begin to put sackcloth and ashes on. They're fasting. They're going before the Lord. Do something. Do something. Mordecai, Esther's the queen. So he gets Mordecai. They, they, they talk. They send messages back and forth. And Esther's like, I, I can't do anything. Look, if you're not called to go before the king, if you're not invited, and I haven't been invited for over 30 days, if you're not invited and you just show up, doesn't matter that he's my husband, you will be struck dead. So here I am. You want me to go there and say, hey, don't kill the Jews because I'm one of them, which remember, the king doesn't know that at the moment. You want me to go there and share that, but I will be struck dead. <laughs> and then here's what we have. Here's the response that Mordecai had to Esther. Then he instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials, I'm sorry, that was the part we just said. Then Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, and he sent this answer back. He said, do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. First of all, he's declaring his faith. Be sure of this, our provident God will save our people. But you and your father's family, they will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent reply back to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day, and I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go before the king, even though it is against the law, if I perish. I perish. So here's Esther realizing why it is that she's in this position. God gives her this great plan after prayer and fasting. He's she, have a couple banquets, make sure Haman's there, and then uh, let me do the rest. I don't know how that made sense to, to Esther, 
But she went ahead and said, okay, king, went before the king. King says, what is it you need? I'm not going to kill you. In fact, I'll give you up to half my kingdom because I think you're amazing. And so he goes, she goes, okay, I want to have a banquet. And then she called for a second banquet. And, and I don't know how this is going to transpire into uh, saving the Jews. But the Lord does because he's always at work because every moment is for such a moment as this. So after the first banquet, the king goes to bed. In the middle of the night, he wakes up and he can't sleep. He's having a hard time. And he goes, hey, who was that guy that uh, saved me from dying? What was his name? And they bring him out the book of history and he reads there was Mordecai. And he goes, what did we ever do for Mordecai? How do we celebrate him? And then nothing. And so he tells Haman, <laughs> this is great, right? He tells Haman to go out and celebrate Mordecai and put him on the, uh, the, the greatest of horses, dress him in kingly robes, and parade him around and give Mordecai great praise. He was he, dying. What's that? Haman was just dying. Oh, yeah. Can you imagine that? He wanted to kill this guy, and instead he's got to parade him around and go, this is the man. And he comes back to the second banquet, just floored. But he's excited that he's a part of the banquet. And then Esther reveals, hey, remember Mordecai that you just celebrated? Remember Mordecai that you just had Haman, Haman go put on the horse and prayed around the city? That's the guy, the guy that, you sa that saved, your, saved your butt. He's a Jew. Not only is he a Jew, he's my cousin who raised me. And that means I'm a Jew too. If you go forward with this decree, you will kill him and you will kill me and all my people. Well, Haman gets killed. Boom, king gets mad, puts him on a spear and kills him. And then he says this. He says, my next decree, I cannot take away the decree I made, but I will make this decree, that all the Jews may defend themselves and fight for their freedom. And the Lord steps in and raises them to great victory, which swept fear among all the people and nations that were around. The Lord's providence prevailed. He saved his people. The question we're left with as we want to look at a different perspective of this passage is this. For such a time as this. That wasn't just for these big, great moments. We, uh, Gretchen talked about it. For such a time as this that, that, that Esther went through the death of her parents. For such a time as this that she was brought into the harem. For such a time as this that she had to go sit with a disgusting king all night long. For such a time as this, she was made queen. For such a time as this, she had a banquet where she described what took place. For such a time as this, the people of Israel were saved. The covenant was saved. The covenant prospered. We found ourselves on the way back to Jesus, which would save each and every one of us who put their faith in him. Every moment of our life is for just such a time as this. We have a sovereign God that doesn't waste anything, not the really crummy parts of our life and not the really great parts of our life. He doesn't waste any of it. He uses it all. And he uses it for what? To save people all around us, to carry out his plan in saving people and bringing them into his presence. And he is always with us. The question is, is how do we walk through life with that attitude? How are we going to respond in our daily life to say to God, for such a time as this, Lord, what will our response need to be? The very first one is we need to learn to pray and fast. 
And I think that, that as you ask that question, how do you respond well? It's, do you believe that, what he just said? Do you believe that God uses all things for his glory and your good? Because if you don't believe that, that you don't have a starting place, right? And I think that, that in Esther's story, gosh, like, I've been reading this book every day for a really long time, and it just breaks me. Her situations are rough. And sometimes our situations are rough. And we just sang that song, I'm going to sing in the middle of a storm. And I just feel like I love singing those songs, and, and, and it's good, but, but this is what Esther's doing here. She's singing in the middle of a really, really terrible just because they happen and just because we know the end of the story doesn't make any of these things okay, right? How many of you know like a 10 to 13-year-old little girl? Put her in this story and your heart will break. But this is how Esther responds. It happens. She finds out from Mordecai. She finds out from um, her closest relative what she needs to do. And it's not good news. Yet again, it's not good news. She knows it's above her. She knows it's beyond her. She knows it's out of her league. And our first instinct is to run to God. That has to be our first instinct, guys. Whether or not it's our first instinct because we've, we've lived a life that knows that that's our best option, or whether or not people have just role modeled it and we know that that's what we're supposed to do, it's, it's the best option we have, always. Her response when she hears her cousin, uncle, tell her that she has to do this thing is this, go, gather all of the Jews in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days, and I and my young women will fast also. She knows that she needs to be as close to her God as she can, and not just on her own strength, but on the strength of her entire community, right? Fasting in the Old Testament the biblical um, ideas of fasting, the biblical examples, happen um, for repentance, happen for mourning, are um, an aid to prayer, taking something away from yourself that you do on a daily basis, keeping your eyes on God. It also happens as an acknowledgement of your dependence on God. And this little girl needed to depend on her God. But the one I love most is that it happens as a request for guidance and intervention especially before a dangerous activity, journey, or battle. In the Old Testament, the people that didn't um, worship Yahweh worshiped gods that didn't really talk back. In fact, I think some of them um, in the Middle Eastern sort of cultures referred to Yahweh as um, the God who listens because it was so weird, right? She's going to a God that she knows is going to hear her and respond to her. She also knows she's going to a God who is going to fight this battle for her. I've been reading through the Old Testament, and the pattern that I see pop up again and again that challenges me in everything that I do is that Israel and Judah go before the God go into battle, and before they ever start, they know they're completely outnumbered, they're complete, they can't win. It's impossible. And again and again, you see them say, Lord, go before us. Fight this battle. We don't even need to be there. We'll just follow you up. You just go take them out, and we'll hang out, and we'll just stay nice and close to you, and that's how we'll get through this. They do it again and again and again, and that's what Esther's saying here. God, you fight this battle. That's how we need to respond in our daily life. And if God is fighting our battles... We have nothing to fear. We don't. He wants to come into our lives for, his, for our good and his glory. That's what he desires. In, um, in Second Chronicles, there's a story where Assyria is about to attack 
and it's one of those battles. And Hezekiah responds in a, in, a, in a good way. And this is what he says to his army before they fight. Be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid or discouraged because of the king of Assyria or his mighty army, for there is a power greater on our side. He may have a great army, but they are merely men. We have the Lord, our God, to help us and fight our battles for us. Going to God and getting a good picture of who we actually serve who God actually is, gives us true perspective on our situations. I had a, I had a teacher, a, a pastor in college, who, whose name was Joe Lyway. He was from Liberia, and he was this tall, so I loved him a lot. And um, he used African proverbs in his preaching a lot, and the one that I still remember to this day says, if you walk in the footsteps of an elephant, you needn't fear a thorn. Our God is huge. And as a result, our God's perspective is far beyond our perspective, and he's not worried about thorns. So our job isn't to fight, and our job isn't to worry. Our job is to stay as close to our God as we can, to run to him, because you can't step in the footsteps of an elephant if you're not walking right behind him. And that's where we need to be in order to fight our battles. Prayer and fasting, as Esther does it, is what gives her perspective on her life that she can make good choices going forward. we're going to pray, we're going to fast, we're going to seek the Lord. What's the next right step for us? We know that this moment is incredibly important, whatever moment that is, because you're at work, your provident, sovereign plan is being unfolded right before me. But what's the next thing we're going to do? We're going to seek wise counsel. Esther did it the whole entire time, whether it was the eunuch or whether it was the godly counsel of of, of Mordecai. She was always seeking counsel. In Esther 2.20, we read this. But Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality, just as Mordecai had told her to do. For she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions as she had done when when he was bringing her up. To receive counsel is to help us. To receive biblical counsel is to help us direct us in the way of the Lord. Who in your life is giving you biblical counsel? Who do you go to on a regular basis to say, hey, can you help me discern what's going on? Can you give me some wisdom, biblical wisdom, biblical counsel about the situation I'm in in my life? This moment is incredibly important and God is at work. Who in your life is speaking the word of God to you? Who is helping you discern the circumstance you're in? Who in your life is giving you wise counsel? Listen to what Proverbs 2, 1 through 6 says. My son, if you accept my words and store up my commands within you, turning your ear to wisdom and applying your heart to understanding, indeed, if you call out for insight and cry out loud for understanding, and if you look for it as for silver and search for it as hidden treasure, then you will understand and fear the Lord and find the knowledge of the Lord. For the Lord gives wisdom and from his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. The very first place that knowledge and understanding comes from is scripture itself. We must be in the word every single day of our lives. If every single moment is important, then every single day we must be gleaning the wisdom of scripture and the knowledge of the Lord himself. We must be learning how to apply that knowledge of Scripture to our lives. We have the greatest counsel of all times in all history of any generation right here, right now, in the completion of the Word of God. Do we use it? Do you go to it? Is it the first place you turn for wisdom and counsel no matter what moment you're in in your life? And then who have you surrounded yourself who goes to it, who seeks it, who understands it, who is helping you to make wise decisions and choices in your life? If you don't have anybody like that, 
Would you please join a life group? Would you join a life group with some other godly people who are seeking out biblical wisdom and will walk with you that you can walk with them? If you're like, hey, I don't know. I just need a guy that's going to walk with me. Or I just need a woman that will walk with me and help teach me things of the faith and, and how to act wisely. Put it right now. Pull out that connect card and put it on there. And we will find somebody for you to walk with. We'll help introduce you to a class that you can learn more about how to read scripture. We'll introduce you to a life group that you can walk with and be involved with. But you have to seek wise biblical counsel. If you are truly going to live with this moment being for such a time as the Lord has chosen it to be. You can either walk with him or apart from him. But it is this moment and it's the one he chose. But there comes a place where it's not enough just to pray. It's not enough just to know what's wise. We have to surrender our will and follow him. Help us with that one. We sang that God acting in our life changes what we see and what we seek. And I just want to make a note of the fact that as Esther responded in faithfulness and prayer and fasting and, and wisdom from people around her, that it didn't change her situation. Right? It didn't change that it was still against the law for her to go and see her husband. It didn't change that she was still looking at probable death. Her, her interactions with God changed her. They changed what she saw and what she sought out, right? They changed her perspective on the situation. You can go through life and you can make all of the right decisions, and there's no promise that your situation will change. There is absolute promise that God will walk through it with you, that he has a plan, and that he never fails. Esther, given this situation, responds this way. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. I've never been in a situation where following God would mean my probable death. I've been in situations where I might have gone hungry for a little while or I might have had a really complicated interaction, but I've never, I've never come up against this. What on earth allowed her to act rightly in this situation? And I have to believe that it was a life of, of, of tiny moments tiny for such a time as this moment, that allowed her to build trust in the God that she followed, that she knew that his will was, was better than hers in every situation. Um, it's not that she didn't understand the danger. It's not that she didn't know what was going on or what was at stake. She didn't have to understand the plan, though. The plan was weird. It's, I got to tell you, it was weird. The three banquets thing, I don't get it. And neither did she. But how many times when we pray and ask God and we feel like we get an answer, are we like, so I feel like God's telling me this. But that's strange. So maybe I'll do this other thing, right? You don't have to raise your hands. I've done it. I've done it a lot. I've heard stories of really interesting things that God asks you to do. And, and you, you sit at this crossroads where you're like, I'm either going to do it and not ask to understand, or I'm going to demand that I get why this is happening. And Esther chooses the good road. She just does it. She does what he says. Um, it's, easy, it's easy to say in this situation that it was, um, it, was, it, was, it was the right thing, right? But the question remains, what if it didn't all work out? Like in this story, it works out for Esther, but what happens if it didn't? What happens if she comes to the Lord and it ends really poorly for her? Well, there's a story of people in the same culture that sort of experience that same thing. And they knew 
that the situation wasn't going to change based on how God responded. The story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, same culture, king before, they don't bow down, just like uh, Mordecai doesn't bow down. And they say to the king, we will not bow down to you. And if you throw us in the fiery furnace, our God is able to deliver us. But if he doesn't, they know that he might choose not to. But that doesn't change who God is. It doesn't change that they're not going to bow down to another God. God is still God. They're still going to worship God. There's a song that I love that says, the secret mysteries belong to you. We only know what you reveal. Praise you. Thank you. That is merciful of you. And all my questions that are unresolved don't change the wisdom of your plan. The story, if it ends poorly, is just part of a longer story that doesn't end poorly. Our God doesn't fail. He's already won, right? Have you ever seen a tapestry? You know, like the things that hang on the wall? Have you ever seen the back of one? No. Everyone hides them. They're ugly. They're really bad, right? All of the loose ends, and it looks like it's nothing but a big glob of mistakes. Nobody would ever buy the tapestry if they sold them with the back facing out. It's, it's a bundle of errors. It's chaos, right? We're, we're positioned in a place where our lives, we are looking at our lives from the back of the tapestry. That's all we got. That's what God chooses in his perfection to reveal to us. God gets to see the tapestry from the other side. And let that truth humble you, but also just give you a deep desire to want to be satisfied with the perspective that we have. We can sit and we can complain and we can be sad that we don't see the front of the tapestry. But instead, let's really challenge ourselves in our hearts to love God and to trust him enough. It doesn't just go for, for those things, but like our God, he doesn't fail. He doesn't falter. And so surrendering, like Esther was doing, means standing on those truths even when it's real painful. And I know that a lot of us would be psyched to have like an Esther moment. To be like, you know, you either praise God or you die or like save your people or this. But the truth of the matter is, is that your ability to respond well in those moments is almost completely dependent on your ability to make every moment of your life a for such a time as this moment. Do nothing without arguing and complaining. As you are tempted to argue or complain or be dissatisfied or be anxious, those are all for such a time as this moment where God is challenging you to trust him to fight your battles and to stay near to him and choose to surrender. That big moment, it's made up of all of those small moments. And we gotta learn to be a people that trust God in every moment and believe that he has given us every moment for such a time is this. Whatever's going on in your life today, pray fast, right? Seek wise counsel through scripture and those that are in the word. And then surrender to his right next step. <laughs> and who knows? Maybe you'll be in a position where there's an entire group of people whose lives are saved because of a moment just such as this. Or better yet, may it be your neighbor, mm. your coworker, your son, your daughter, your family member, 
just maybe, they will come to know the life-saving truth of Jesus Christ because you chose to live in just such a moment as this, fully surrendered, making the wise choice, and being led by prayer. Let's pray. Father, thank you. We thank you for your wisdom and your word. We thank you for the fact that you didn't just use well put together in these people in these crazy circumstances that, that seem too unreal for us, Father. You used people that had junk and crummy things happen to them and evil people meaning to do evil things and, and mistakes that were made and disobedience that was on display. And, and you used them to do the most amazing things. You used them to save your people. You used them to preserve your covenant. You used them to make sure that Jesus Christ showed up. You used them to save our lives today. And Father, we can't thank you enough for doing that. And so Lord, today we rejoice and all that you do, and we say that it is true. We declare with the pages of Scripture, we declare right along with Esther and Mordecai, and we declare that every moment in our lives is a moment that you have sovereign authority over, and you are doing something great and amazing far beyond our wildest imagination. And so, Father, we come to you in prayer and ask you to lead us and guide us. We will seek wisdom and ask for you to surround us with that wisdom, including your word. And we will surrender this moment to you. Oh, Lord, may your will be done in our lives. Thank you, Father, for loving us so much that you would bring us into your plan and you would use us in people's lives. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.